Hi, I'm Ben Tritt, CEO of ArtMatter, a creative technology company for the visual arts. At the core of our culture is an ecosystem that brings together artists, engineers, and business leaders. Hi, I'm Michael Apfel, partner and founder of Redcap Films. Like the majority of creatives, I love the tools I use and how they make my life easier, but I have little understanding of how they actually work, how they're made, and how to make them better. We're going to be interviewing the most creative minds in art, tech, and business to find out what's behind the curtain by asking one simple question. So what do you do? Hi, everybody. Welcome to the uh, recording. I'm Michael Apfel. I'm a filmmaker based in Brooklyn, and I'm going to pass you on to the other people to introduce themselves before we get to our guest, Rick Carter. So, uh, Ben, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Michael. Uh, ben Tritt, CEO and founder of Art Matter. We produce uh, printing technology for creatives across a range of applications. Um, and actually, currently working with Dev Joshi. Dev, quick, uh, quick intro. Hi, uh, so my name is Dev. Uh, I'm a designer and technologist uh, working in uh, London, and um, I spent many years and continue to uh, work with artists to help them use technology to achieve their ends, essentially. So it's my great pleasure to be working with Art Matter to try and figure out how to do the doing bit of the, the vision that is uh, at work here. That's me. I'm Rick Carter. I'm a production designer and um, we'll try to illuminate the various aspects of my work on movies. Thank you, Rick. Um, the, uh, the intention when we you know, started uh, recording these interviews uh, was to look at a podcast that is framed around art and technology uh, and specifically around looking at this divide, um, building these bridges between the digital and the physical. Um, so given, um, maybe we'll just for the, for the public and by the way, so some people will be watching, some people will be listening. So if we, if we have a uh, visual media, um, for those that are not watching, we'll have that as an attachment on our site and in the show notes. Um, but we can just explain it as we're going along if we do have visuals. Um, so we do, uh, Rick, you, you, uh, require really no introduction, but um, um, to do it anyway, uh, uh, the, the list of your achievements <clears throat> of your films, um, is just so unprecedented as a production designer, um, to just, I'm mean, just reading off the highlights going from back to the future, Jurassic Park, Forrest Gump, uh, you know, Castaway, AI, Polar Express, War of the Worlds, Munich, Avatar, Lincoln, War Horse, Star Wars, um, two of which you have won um, the, uh, the, uh, the Oscars for. How many nominations have you had total? Uh, four, four nominations for the Oscar. Um, it's just, you know, for anyone uh, with any interest whatsoever in movies, it's staggering. <clears throat> for, <clears throat> for those of us that have grown up with Star Wars, um, it's, uh, you know, even more so. So I think you'd probably be aware when, when uh, folks of, of my, uh, my generations get 
in a conversation with you, um, we're a bit like giddy school children. Um, <laughs> just get that out of the way. Uh, and I, I just, in um, the generous uh, time and, and energy you have given to myself and to what we've been doing at Art Matter over the past year, uh, year, year plus maybe, um, the, the guidance has been invaluable. And I can say with all of the uh, numerous artists across many applications, many, you know, at the, basically at the top of their game that we have worked with or still working with, I have to say in all honesty, the, the input that I've gotten from you has been, um, has been uh, the most compelling and engaging and I want to understand or try to unearth and try and poke out a little bit of where that comes from, where your, where your skills are. Um, and uh, yeah, just trying to unearth a little bit about, about your specific talents, where that, where that comes from. So just to go back to, because I, I um, we, we, to start from the beginning, where we uh, heard a little thing from the last podcast that we dealt with, the last interview, Rick, can you tell us a little bit about your, um, I guess, upbringing? Because that's feeds into everything, but your upbringing and your education and your, that led you into your career path. Go back to the beginning if you want, wherever you want to start. Well, first, thank you for the compliments. Um, and if I'm to go back, it's, 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 it's actually, for me, the way I'm looking at it these days, it's more about going into a perspective that tries to take into account um, as you asked, where do I come from? And then what have I been doing? And what's the through line to all of that? And uh, it, more and more, it's become clear to me that that while I know that it's a cliche to talk about uh, life and experiences as a journey, uh, I th and I think because of uh, Joseph Campbell's introduction of that concept into our pop culture through Star Wars, many people talk about... Uh, the narrative of their lives in, in a journey motif. What I would say for myself is that it's been a necessity, uh, partly because I don't see the drama of my life uh, in a in a structured way that that rises to certain epiphanies and then actually ends. It's more like a journey through experiences that give me glimpses of something that I always return to over time. And then I've been very fortunate to be a traveler uh, from a young age when I went around the world a couple of times uh, in my early 20s. But that's led into a, a pursuit where I actually, um, through movies, have continued that journey. And although the projects are created by other people, such as Steven Spielberg and Bob Zemeckis or Jim Cameron or J.J. Uh, Abrams, the, the, the experiences that I have of being able to visualize and to, to access something in myself that's relatively uh, deep has evolved over time so that I, I actually look at that body of work as an extension of my own personal travels and uh, all the way even evolving to where we are now, which is to say uh, many of us, most of us probably are, are somewhat more isolated and certainly not traveling physically the way uh, we were able to up until just a few months ago or in our lifetimes. So it, it seems to me that that motif 
not only continues, it perhaps even uh, intensifies. And um, so I'm, I'm always looking now to see a way that I can actually access that level without physically having to go out into the world, but to still look for those things that take me on a journey that is reminiscent of the early days when I was young, all the way through the various movies I've worked on. I know that sounds somewhat abstract, but I think that's the entree point for collaboration with most of the people that I've uh, worked with, because I look to tap into what their journey is about on an artistic exploration level and to try to fill in and make associations for them and with them about the things that they're seeing, but not not things necessarily that they've they've put together themselves. And then that feeds back a, a kind of a a loop that creates a, a bubble that's bigger than both of us. And then hopefully when other people come into the mix uh, and they add their parts, it just makes it all bigger than the, the, the sum of the parts. So that's an abstract way of answering your uh, initial question. But I, of course, can go into the specifics, if you want, of, of my early years or any of the movies that, that I've gotten to work on. Um, I wouldn't mind if it's okay um, if you tell us just a little bit about your education in general. Um, I mean, I know you spoke about the traveling, but specifically your education, because um, nobody really knows about it right now. So tell us what you went through, I guess. Well, as far as my, my education in the early years, I lived in Los Angeles and I ended up uh, going to high school in the, in the Pacific Palisades. Then I went uh, to University of California at Berkeley during the late 1960s, which was years of a lot of uh, social unrest and, and protest. So the balance between what I was learning as a sociology major and what I was experiencing in the culture and the, the, all the protesting, that became a dynamic that I think formed the reason that I went out into the world uh, at a young age. I was uh, a conscientious objector against the war in Vietnam and I was given that status. And when I had a high draft number in the bingo lottery, I didn't have to go into the service. So I instead dropped out of college. And that's when I took the first trip that I did around the world. And I think that opened up my perspective to beyond formal education, but what the world has to offer in the way of, of just the humanity and the environments that, that one can encounter and the sense of spirit of place that you can discover when you come to some foreign place, which can either be positive or negative, but it's something that can go into you. And it became something I drew upon later as I began to design movies where it's my job essentially to create a place that others come to be creative. And that's all within the context of a narrative of that movie. When I came back from my first trip, I was pretty exhausted. So I uh, actually transferred to the University of California at Santa Cruz and I took on an art major which is where I developed what I'd always done, which is my sketching. And that's where I learned to draw upon how to paint uh, portraits and people, which is sort of the opposite of the environments that I create for movies. And then after that, I, I moved to New York to try to make a living uh, you know, as an artist and um, really didn't enjoy all the time alone that I had to spend. So I ended up uh, calling up my father who was in the movie industry as a publicist and I asked him what an art director did because it had the word art in it and he said well I'll, I'll if you come back I'll introduce you to someone who I know who I think will illuminate that for you and I did 
And um, I met Richard Silbert, who was a designer who had worked on a lot of great movies in the late 60s, early 1970s, uh, such as uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate and Chinatown and Rosemary's Baby. And he illuminated for me uh, what I would say is the real education that I got for being a production designer, which was that it was very much uh, open to being a conceptual art. It was not necessarily the literalness of every thing that you did, every discipline, like being an architect or a set uh, designer, a set decorator um, or illustrator. In, In a sense, it was a combination of an idea that you could pursue in a in an environment, especially if you were close with the director, and you could find a way to bring yourself to it, which is what he did, and that's kind of the the initial years I would say of my uh, education, which I wouldn't call it formal, but it was eclectic, and and that's kind of what I've maintained my entire life is, is sort of an eclecticism of of disciplines and learning how to do a job uh, specifically but also trying to maintain the point of view of an artist and an artist traveler, essentially. Um, that, uh, that uh, you know, parallel between the, between the physical traveling and the imaginings that you create for the, for the movies themselves, have you found there's a direct parallel? I think a lot of people, a lot of artists feel that they, they have two separate worlds and they're not sure which, which is more real, if you know what I mean. Fortunately for me, I, I think they've been quite parallel. I mean, all of the themes of the movies, for whatever reason, have been um, not only the journey motif that I described, but a, a, a sort of a quest in which the, 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 the hero or the, the person that the movies revolves around usually is just one or two people, and they're on a form of an identity quest. Uh, so that the things that they find out about themselves and how that affects the plot in, their, in, their, in the narratives is somewhat parallel to what I have found in my own life. So, you know, I, I got to literally start with a movie called Bound for Glory, <clears throat> which is about Woody Guthrie. <clears throat> and so I, and that was perfect for me because it was a Hal Ashby movie who, and he was essentially a hippie, and that's basically where I was coming from. And it was about a loner and someone who traveled around and 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 expressed themselves through their songs, and that that became kind of a a motif for me to 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 join my own life to. So it wasn't a big uh, jump to make that kind of a movie. And then, of course, getting into a movie like um, Back to the Future is is really about a, a a guy just coming out of high school and going, you know into the world, both in the present tense and all the way going back into, into uh, um, 1950s, all the way back to the 1880s, into the future, 2012. So the journey in, in that aspect was not physical as much as it was through time. But then I learned a lot about what it is it to then, in a sense, maybe that's what the isolation version of time of travel will be it's 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 like dimensional travel or time travel because you can't physically go somewhere but you can extend that type of a of an energy out and it needs to go somewhere it can go perhaps into the future or into the past or another dimension that 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 is being uh, envisaged as a fantasy but all of that led to re 
asserting an idea I think that was always in me, which is about going somewhere. And that's and because the movies, if you think about the just the the list of them, almost every single one of them goes somewhere. Castaway goes somewhere. Jurassic Park goes somewhere. War of the Worlds, Avatar, uh, War Horse, the Star Wars movies, BFG. They don't stay in one place. Every once in a while, there's one such as What Lies Beneath or, or Death Becomes, where you go kind of, you go in, in, and you go down, and you find something that's different than what you started with. But that's parallel to the way I see my own life and, and my work uh, as an individual as well. So I don't look at it as, fortunately, as though there's one reality over here and one over here. I I, I'm aware of those two, and I find myself in the middle of them, accessing both. But I don't, I don't like make, I, I don't make a living doing X and then live really over here. Um, and I think that that's been a real benefit for me in my life, and uh, and hopefully I've conveyed some of that uh, with the collaborators that I work with, so that they also have chosen projects uh, that parallel their interests and who they really are at any given moment. The, um, it's interesting. That's an incredible answer. Thank you. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about these parallel worlds and you exist between them, like the zipper, um, almost in a zip. Uh, I wanted to ask a short follow-up question, which is just, when you exist between these two places, what is the most um, tiring or difficult or arduous thing to do given that you don't fully exist in one place or the other. Um, like there's great value, obviously, in being able to draw from both and influence one from the other, but there has to be some downside to that, right? I'm sure there is, and I, and I know I've suffered that aspect of it. However, uh, something that I've learned in the last 10 years, and it actually came from when I spent so much time in London, was uh, looking down at that, uh, on the subway platforms where it says, Mind the Gap, and that started to become like a, a, a message to me that I began, believe it or not, kind of uh, subconsciously responding to. And I started thinking, well, if I'm finding myself between these two worlds, maybe that is truly just reverse that sentence, the paradigm of it, and say, that's where I find myself. So there's freedom in there in which essentially, if you think about it, not as two uh, circles that are like this, but if you overlap them so that, that center is a third half, and that third half is someplace that you can mind as your own personal version of whatever you perceive here and here. My own uh, way of looking at that comes, I think, as I've discovered over the years, from a very specific uh, aspect of my life, which is I have a far-sided eye and a near-sided eye. So I, I don't see the same thing with both eyes anyway. I'm always looking with one eye or the other. So my adapting to that, I think, created this idea area. And then if you think it even further, we do have two sides of our brains that do grow to have synapses over time where there's channels that go back and forth. But you have to create those, whether it's happening subconsciously, consciously, or just biologically or chemically. But that that aspect of, of of seeing two different things at the same time has been so prevalent. Sometimes they overlay, sometimes they're not. And of course, there is consternation when it doesn't come together. But you see, 
it never comes together for me. I, I don't have that perception. Thus, I don't even physically have the ability to see 3D. So you can imagine being in a meeting with Jim Cameron on Avatar or on Polar Express, and the things that they're looking at in terms of the interocular distances and what's creating good 3D and immersive 3D as compared to projecting 3D, I don't actually see that. But I've had to kind of adapt along the way to, even in those types of situations, coming up with a solution that is not necessarily the same as what everybody else has seen, but it helpfully aids and adds to what they're talking about. So that's why I went deeper into Avatar in my mind, and I thought, well, the form of this movie and the content are the same. They are a hybrid. One, in, the, in the form of it, you've got live-action photography and you've got digital imagery, and they, they interface back and forth and then sometimes together. And on the content level, you've got a character who is literally a hybrid character. He is, he is Jake Sully lying in an MRI-type machine, and he's also that character who's out you know, as a Navi in the world running around. And so when I recognize that the whole idea of what vision one can have from a hybrid state is the avatar state, then I start feeding that into the movie uh, through ideas and visuals. And so, for instance, uh, Grace, who's the scientist who's played by Sigourney Weaver, her journey in that movie is a scientific journey to reach the same place Jake's trying to get to. She doesn't succeed fully, but she's still developing her point of view based upon trying to get closer to understanding the same journey. That's why the things that she looks at uh, and uses as, as uh, scientific gear, the imagery that she gets looks like the bioluminescence that Jake and Neytari perceive in a natural way. But that's all a part of the design of the movie. And so like those screens that, that have all that type of imagery is actually, if you look at it, that's like bioluminescence right in the middle of the frame. And that's filtered through and given credibility from another level. They, they do a whole scientific mumbo jumbo to kind of explain why that would be, you know, the consciousness of these roots are coming together and they're actually communicating. And here it is scientifically, but it's also played out in the movie as a narrative point. Now that sounds somewhat complicated, but you realize when you watch the movie, you don't even think about it twice. Yet we had to create all of that in order for the movie to have a, what they call a, ver a verisimilitude, the appearance of truth, the appearance of science that's backing it up. And then for me, what I thought was, well, if I've had those kinds of perceptions, where am I getting those perceptions from where it does come together? And I'm just gonna call it a third eye that's right here. And I'm going to say that that third eye is, is where the avatar state is projected from when you're lying in one of those machines. And who's going to prove me wrong? I've got all the, the, the graphs that I show in the movie, you know, that, that make it look like it's happening. And if you thought about the, the, the plot going in, you'd say, what? How are you going to do that? A guy lies down in a machine and the next thing you know, goes, woo, and he's blue, he's nine feet tall and he's running around. That's like, well, how are you going to get there? That's a design process that Jim and the whole art department worked very hard on to, in order to give it a, a credibility. So you, you take that suspension of disbelief and you, and you, you actually make it into a, an invitation to believe that you can go into one of those machines and you'll come out the other end. And that's, that's like the metaphor for 
the cinema itself, the very personalized version of what we experience when we go into a fantasy. And, you know, that, I mean, nothing, no one's more isolated than that guy in that machine. So, you know, we're, we're doing pretty well compared to him. <laughs> I feel like it's, it's uh, um, a, a metaphor, of course, for, for film, but I've almost all of the art forms, right? Where you have a connection on some physical level to, to the medium, be it a book um, or be it, uh, you know, brush marks um, or musical instrument. And then you are transported to this other realm. And the, um, in terms of the, the gap that you referred to, mm-hmm. mining the gap, I, I, this, this, ha- this, uh, this idea actually came up in the last conversation we had with Dr. Kate Stone um, that the, you know, to my mind, it's the thing that is most captivating and magical about any artistic experience when you're, well, at least cognitively or consciously, uh, you know, uh, maybe rationally can't understand the exact connection between the experience you're having in a painting. It would be the image that you're seeing and the brush marks that were used to create that image. Um, there's always a gap between those things. So the, the less you can consciously understand how those things converge, the more interesting the work of art. And, and then it takes on a life of its own because I would say that in a cinematic uh, experience, um, the space that that is happening in is actually not on the screen nor in your head. It's somewhere as a combination of those two in the distance between wherever you're sitting and whatever you're experiencing. Now, I don't know exactly how to describe that if it's a, you know, if it's a goggle experience, but what I'm getting at is it's not just who you are and it's just not what the movie was when it was created and in, and whatever its intent was. Somehow it's taking on a life in that gap space that feels very personal, yet at the same time, the filmmakers can feel that they had something to do with making that, in such a way that you experienced it. And there's maybe sometimes it's, there's a commonality to it and sometimes it's extremely individual. And um, I, I think that that's one of the magical aspects of all art, but particularly in the, in the mediums that, that are being explored now. And particularly now that we're trying to do it remotely as well as physically to, to, to get people to, to experience certain types of things and that they will also interpret that the way they want to interpret it. So that you could never, at least in my generation or my mind's eye, imagine that you'd get to the point where the, the, the ubiquitousness of ways to record reality, iPhones and sound recordings and a million other ways of data points that we can track. And it literally has rendered much of it uh, ineffective because now you you can literally just deny anything and and you have other sources to to argue the opposite reality thus the thing that was built up into a thing is now right before our eyes no longer a thing and and that's 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 a powerful uh dimensionality i think that cinema and art can go into and I, it's probably what you're really trying to get into yourselves which is that place between where it's a experiential uh, art piece that some artist creates through a device and a technological advancement that allows you to to then have it be accessible to other people but that then they maybe 
have a response or an experience with it that takes it even further than you could ever imagine. Uh, not that not that all art doesn't do that to some degree. I think one of the questions I'm just riffing here, one more step on the idea is the if you have a painting that was done by Rembrandt in front of you, you can often in a museum setting stand the distance that he was from that when he created it. And I think that that the the very nature of that and the objectness that that is there in front of you creates some kind of a thing that we're aware of that it is real and thus it takes on potentially if you value it enough an almost talisman spiritual quality that you 500 years later could be standing next to in the same place that the artist stood in relationship to that when it was created thus the channeling of that and the projection of that artist's vision to you all create some kind of a subconscious dynamic as to why we would want to even go see the Mona Lisa, let's say, even if it's got glass in front of it, even if there's people all around you. So how you get into that, you can't ape that. You can't, you can't just mimic it. You have to find out a way to get at its, its power. And, and so if you were to take that idea, and I'm just riffing here for a moment, say photography itself, I would have said, well, you can make a print and you can do a limited number of prints that an artist, let's say, created. And I've seen that that's had value. But when photography became uh, well established as an art form in the early 70s, I was very doubtful that that would ever be able to be something you could monetize. Because it, unless, you, unless maybe you had the signature of the, of the photographer or whatever, but somehow even that has gone into another realm where people can want to share this and have some relationship to it that makes it valuable to them. So I think that's all the same stuff, the same gray matter that artists, the producers of that uh, are in, involved with. Um, but when it comes to production design, nobody ever knows what you do anyway, because it's a suspension of disbelief magic trick that you're not designed to, to know. So, so on that note, actually, um, I, this is just a little tidbit. I, I, I have been a huge fan of your work as it happens. Ben will tell you just how excited I was just when your name came up for the first place without trying to give you a huge head right now. Um, I was very excited. Now, I have been a huge fan of your work, but the truth is uh, millions and millions of people around the world have also been fans of your work without knowing they've been fans. Not everyone knows what a production designer or an art designer does. Sure. Now, now, with that in mind, your your craft when you started out with, um, you know, in your first films has evolved so much to what it's become today. Um, can you, I guess, tell the audience from a practical perspective what you actually do on a, and I guess what everyone else in your field does, an art director, production designer, what they do from, you know, envisioning it? Because obviously I, I'm going to give examples now. Um, uh, Jurassic Park starts off as a uh, just it, it was a book then it got translated into a screenplay and so on I'm gonna ask you to I guess tell the audience someone who's never heard of what you do in your life explain it to them uh, what you've done and also how it's changed over the years if that's okay that's a small question um, <laughs> no uh, well when I got into it as I said, I, I wondered what an art director did because it, it just had the word art in it. And I didn't know if it was just that it's you're the person who helps place the paintings on the wall in a scene. 
and that that would be you were directing the art somehow. Uh, then, as my mentor and other people subsequently uh, let me see, was there's a physical side and then there's a, a mental side. So I've, I've sort of described my version of the mental side, um, which is, in some people's point of view, probably mental. Um, but nonetheless, I made it through. So I'm, I, I, it's not that I never paid attention to physically what a production designer does. What a production designer is responsible for is, is what they used to call the look of the film, or now they call it the world that the narrative takes place in. It's visually, how does that come across? What is it like? What are the questions that are answered by seeing whatever you see? So in pragmatic terms, you read the script if a script has been uh, written. I've been on many movies where the script has not yet been written. Jurassic Park was one of them, where it's my responsibility, and I'll just use Jurassic Park as an example, um, although there's many others to be had. Because it was a book in, in a galley form uh, over a year before it was even um, uh, released or published as a book, I was working with the screenwriters and Stephen and the people that were creating the dinosaurs up at ILM and, and Stan Winston Studios to conceive of, of sequences that we could do that were derived out of the action in the book and that I knew would be, or I thought would be, in the, in the screenplay to figure out, number one, how they would be staged. Where would the dinosaurs be? Where would the camera be in relationship to the dinosaurs? Who would be in the scene? And what that setting would look like? How much of it would have to be built? How much of it could later be added, if any? And in that case, very little. Most everything was built physically. So on one hand, it was the pragmatic side of how do you put dinosaurs in an environment? The other side, of course, was what does it look like? What does Jurassic Park come across as as a park? In the book, it's a it's a relatively negatively described uh, experiment, where whereas Stephen wanted to make it much more user friendly, and in fact it looked like maybe Walt Disney had done it. So there was a pop culture to reaching out for visitors to to put dinosaurs in a context that was on one hand not real and in fact slightly commercialized. But that's part of what would then invite you in. But then, it, remember, it's all going to get collapsed, basically. So it was kind of building something up to take it down, but to have a lot of fun while you're doing it. So let's say if it's the visitor center, and it's in an idyllic uh, setting with a reflection and water. And it's a place you can imagine wanting to go. And if you see that there are dinosaur skeletal displays, the idea there is is that within that there's a sense of what dinosaurs are now as we perceive them and as fossils within rock but now that's going to be uh supplanted by real life dinosaurs in fact to the point where they actually break in the raptors and the t-rex and kind of destroy the the skeletal display and everything that whole sequence really emerged out of the design of a rotunda that would allow the T-Rex to come back in. And in, initially, um, it, the T-Rex didn't come back. The story that really occurred was we had the physical T-Rex on stage that Stan Winston created, augmented by the, the CG T-Rex, um, for the sequence where it comes out of behind the fence and trashes the, the, the cars. 
And Stephen was so enamored of the T-Rex itself that he came to me one day, and we'd already shot in, in, um, in Hawaii the exterior of the visitor center, and he said, the T-Rex has to come back at the end of the movie. It can't just be the raptors, because the T-Rex is the hero or heroine. Um, and I was thinking very literally because we'd already shot the exterior. We'd already physically built that. So I, I actually asked him, well, how does the T-Rex get in? Meaning, is it going to just, it can't just break through all of that and, and then be in the inside. Um, and he was very funny because he said, well, uh, the way it gets in is, is uh, Grant and the kids are around the skeletal display and they're backing up as the raptors are coming towards them. And then a raptor comes from over here and they're caught right in the middle and there's no way for them to get out. And then one of the raptors jumps at them and then the T-Rex comes in and grabs the raptor and flicks it away and then kills the other ones and then roars. And so I started laughing because what he was describing was how the T-Rex gets in his movie and the answer is from the top of the frame. So the whole illusion idea of what are you looking at is all you really know and then the T-Rex could actually come in and fulfill its destiny, but that was all going back to the idea that there was a skeletal display that was a part of the design, which was part of the fulfillment of the idea of the park being a place that essentially that was the old way of looking at dinosaurs. Now the new way is that they're alive, and here we are 20 years later, 30 years later, with Jurassic World 3 coming out in parks and you know all around you know uh, Universal Studios and parks around the world. So the reason I put it in that context is because the design is a very physical manifestation if you create a physical set, but it's still a manifestation of the world if you're in Polar Express where there's no physical sets or if it's uh, BFG or if even if it's Avatar where none of that jungle is real. None of the home tree exists as a real physical space. And so my job is to visualize all of that and to work with whether it's construction people and set designers or the, the, the CG uh, you know, engineers and artists who are so incredible, the visual effects supervisors who are able to construct with me a world that then the narrative happens in. And that's expanded over the years from being relatively simple of just building sets to now envisioning worlds that can never actually be built, but that you can imagine them. So if I'm in Polar Express, it's imagining, you know, the North Pole where Santa Claus makes all the presents as a factory. And then it was my thought that out of that factory setting comes, in a sense, this Aurora Borealis of, of, of that's the byproduct of making all those gifts. It's not pollution, but it's based upon the book that makes the North Pole into a, um, uh, a factory town. But what does that look like? How do you, how do you think about that? And when I went to uh, Chicago, the Pullman factory, the old, it was an old derelict place that at the turn of the 19, or 1900s, it was the thriving community where trains were built and the conductors were trained and everything happened. And from there, the railways went around the country. And, and so I took that as the basis in reality in the past to project a version that people ex hopefully accept as the, the way that the, um, 
the North Pole actually would look in a Chris Van Allsburg, you know, fantasy, the Polar Express. Now that we exist in a place and time where the... So like you say, things were simple or simpler before. You know, you're building sets, you're building physical props, um, which is like a certain type of complexity, and now you are almost unbound in terms of imagining vast forest worlds or or, or, or reimagining the North Pole and this kind of stuff. Um, is that more or less difficult? Like, is, is there more con, con, more freedom within constraint of the, the physical or not? And would you also... Can you give us an example of, like, where you have a certain level of, of vision or you have some particular... Uh, point of existence in your mind but you are unable or the technology is unable or the system is unable or there is some lacking in the manifestation of that um and where where have you come across those kind of issues and and how have you like gotten past them and is it better now is it worse now like how how has that changed because it's like the you know it's uh, yeah back to the future 2 is as old as i am um and even me watching this happen is it's just amazing to see what's different from well i think that it 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 always in a a way evolves and is always the same because when you when you have the limitations that can help help you uh uh be more efficient um and and come up with cinematic ideas if it's a movie that get you to an effect that is not necessarily about seeing everything especially if you have a budget constraint um However, one of the most exciting things to be doing is to be at the cutting edge of where the technology uh, is not something that's tried and true. So if it's the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, we didn't know that we could make those work. Stephen had to invest in that specifically to, to see if, as he put it, we could put you know, a skin on the dinosaur and make it look real and better than a, a stop-motion puppet. Uh, in Back to the Future, Things that look quaint now were uh, ways of doing things that had never been done. You know, the, the having the multiple Martys in a scene, the, what they called the Tondro camera, was the motion controlled so that he could uh, film that, you know, in three or four takes and have that character be played by the same person. Um, there was lots of uh, technological edges. You know, Avatar, of course, is one. Um, and where you don't know, and that's part of what makes it really uh, an experiment, an artistic experiment. In, 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 in Polar Express, we were making everything in a 10-foot grid, all the action. So you had to break everything down. I was being essentially asked to design sets you couldn't see in front of you. Now, by the time we got to Avatar, you could see them in monitors when the cameras could be turned around. Um, I think it's, it's, it's been exciting for me to have that dimension to grow into. And if I'd been spending the last 40 years with all of the givens, the ground rules the same, I don't think I would have felt as uh, adventurous nor uh, as threatened you know, as to whether I could pull it off. And I think being threatened in that way when no one's really going to die is a really exciting place to be. Um, as, we, as we project forward... I can't really say where I think it's going. I think this pandemic that we find ourselves in is 
is going to change a lot of ways of doing things, at least in the short term, because you can't collect lots of people together and have them be safe. So that kind of um, dynamic is going to change how we, how we make it, how the technology responds. Even, Even what we're doing here with an interview like this is, is, is a little different. different. It's common right this moment. Um, but, but I, I find it exciting. It's always good to come from limitations, limitations but, but it's always great if you have a way out. out. A question, I mean, you, I guess I want to go back a little bit because you do have the advantage of, um, you know, creating entire worlds, as you just mentioned, and also helping other people visualize their worlds. Um, but so much of that goes, I guess, like, you know, your past. And, uh, what, what has been an inspiration for you in general? Because I don't know if it's been other art directors or the, you know, and, and other innovators in the past, because it doesn't necessarily need to be in your field. You know, people can look at other things that can inspire them. Have there been any of those that have really changed you in everything you're doing up until this day? Well, the, the most fundamental influence in my life is, is uh, John Lennon and the Beatles. I mean, that's where I feel like I modeled my job after the a concept as though I was a fifth Beatle, which is a conceptual space anyway, because there are so many fifth Beatles, from Pete Best to Yoko Ono, George Martin, and, and, and anybody who's been in their, their sphere. Um, but the, I say that because... Uh, when I listened to the Beatles growing up, uh, my mind expanded and I visualized, you know, in a in a way that while I could be impacted by an architect or an artist, I I was a little more aware of how that was impacting me um, and that I would be drawn to a certain kind of painter, you know, whether it's uh, Van Gogh or, or Rembrandt or, or Michelangelo or somebody who, who is a big artist in my mind and also in the world that I could admire greatly but the the message that i got uh, from the beatles about the collective nature and the collaborative nature of making something bigger than the sum of its parts and giving me such an antidote to the negative aspects of either my personal life or the times that we were in by being able to listen to that kind of music that inspired me in a way that i would say uh, was not only profound for me personally, it, it was one of those aspects where I say to myself, um, if you've heard the message, it's hard not to want to pass the message on. And so you kind of hear that from someone or some buddies, and then you, you because you're aware of it, you, or at least I, have wanted to be a partaking of that. And I think the eclectic nature of the movies I've worked on, the the talent of the in a sense, the four major directors that I've worked on are, it's kind of like John, Paul, George, and Ringo. I mean, really, you know, you got Spielberg, you got Zemeckis, Cameron, and and J.J. Abrams. And they, they are big forces or have been in their vision out in the world during a certain epoch that I've gotten to help create in. So that's that's been a very powerful um, uh, motivator for me to, to think in those terms. So I guess that's, essentially musical terms but it's also visual terms because I, I was so stimulated visually uh, through the music and um, Bob Dylan of course was in there as well but that was a little more cerebral intellectual not quite as just effervescently visual and optimistic and I think that's the the key there is that 
all these movies I've gotten to work on, they all are quite romantic in the sense of having a hero that achieves something at the end of the movie. And I, and I, I think that that's um, the motif that I've been allowed to be a part of. I don't know how it's going to progress from here. I think the younger generation is going to have to really step up and help figure this out. Um, you know, but I, I think that that's, that's been the influence. It, it, it's not, it's not a one-to-one so much. There's other designers, uh, Michael Riva, who was, uh, the guy who was a production designer in Goonies. He really taught me not to be afraid of the job and to actually, uh, enjoy being a kid. We, we were both swashbucklers when we were doing that movie. And Michael Haller, who was a production designer for Hal Ashby movies, told me about how to conceptualize scenes in, a, in an offbeat way, ways you wouldn't expect, such as when you shoot on locations, you're looking for things that you would never design. You would never make certain kinds of mistakes or idiosyncratic choices that only happen because they're real and someone's adapting. And then there it is, and it feels real, and it offers opportunities. And um, as I said, my, my primary mentor as a production designer was Richard Silbert. And he had the idea that there was a single idea that he would try to gravitate and design around so that when he did a movie such as um, uh, um, Chinatown, he was aware that the whole movie revolved around the fact that there was no water in that world. And so everything was responding to that. So that's why he designed all of the colors to look like it was dry and, and, and a lot of heat, elegant, but everything had to do with the, the very foundational idea that there was no water. And then he goes to the one person who's the most powerful, you know, Noah Cross, he's surrounded by water. And it, it's a way of thinking about the design of a movie that permeates the movie. Uh, uh, in The Graduate, he would talk about that there would be planes of, of, of glass uh, that would separate Benjamin from other people, whether it was the fish tank or being down with the goggles at the bottom of the of the ocean, uh, the pool, or even at the, if you think about the end when he's up there banging on the glass when, when uh, 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 his girlfriend is getting married to another guy, there'd be no reason to have that glass in that church like that. It, it, so he literally put it up so that, that Benjamin could become like a Christ figure, you know, who's being sacrificed at that moment. Those are design choices. They're not literal like, okay, Get me a church where it looks like it belongs in this neighborhood. There's nothing wrong with that. But the metaphoric idea of what you're uh, trying to convey, that's a design. And that, that often comes from a good production designer. So I've been influenced by that kind of thinking quite a bit as I try to do that. And, I, and in a movie like, uh, let's see, I, I suppose uh, What Lies Beneath is a good one where there was one part, and I'm just riffing here, um, where the main character, Claire, who's played by Michelle Pfeiffer, sees the truth about her husband having an affair, Harrison Ford, with another younger woman. She sees that in a mirror. And then I started thinking, well, that means that the truth is in the mirror. And I told that to Bob Zemeckis, the, the director, and he used that. So there's like about 85 mirror shots in that movie, where whenever he wants to invoke what's really true, he'll... It put it into a mirror, and that that has something to do then with how the movie is designed in and around those vantage points that that you have. So, 
it's subtle, but it's it's food for thought. And I've always enjoyed the way the art directors, the production designers, can communicate that kind of level to a movie, even if most of the people who come in to shoot the movie don't understand it, and virtually nobody who's watching the movie is understanding that. But it's our own private coded language that we're communicating, and it sometimes. I think has an effect on, on the movie of holding it together visually and conceptually and and even purposefully. So that's that's a long-winded way of saying how did you get you know uh, out of Kansas? But that's that's my um, that's my journey, as I as I mentioned before. When you uh, talk about art directors and production <coughs> designers having to. Uh, find, make, and take opportunities during the process of like bringing a film to life. Would you say that? Um, so this is very different now than it used to be. So like if you take a show like um, like The Mandalorian, for example, that's out recently, uh, which is shot not even on green screen and not even in this idea of like being able to see it through a monitor out into the this digital world, like it's on on video wall essentially, which means you can have someone redo the composition of a shot in real time at almost no cost other than of like a of a you know desktop operator uh versus actually being on hawaii and standing there and being like these trees are not in the right place um for this framing and and all of that nuance like with i guess this is kind of back to my earlier question about freedom and constraint but like would you would you say that the tools are better now or does it make a or is that even not even the right question? Like you have this new generation of people. Well, the, the, the tools are, are, of course, better. But if you, it, do you want, do you, right, well, I guess my, my point is, well, I, I think they're always used to the best of the ability of the artists who have access to them at any given time. All I would say is not one size fits all because there's there's a lot of people who like animated movies. There's a lot of people who, would say that the Mandalorian is the best way to do a Star Wars movie, um, and it may be the the one that is less expensive ultimately, and and thus more doable than some extravaganza that goes out into a real desert. But I think that a lot of people feel the difference uh, between having some part of the movies, and I would say that as of right now, the hybrid movies seem to me to be the most successful. At least if it's movies, maybe it's on a smaller screen you can get away with it more. But if you if you think about The Mandalorian, and this is not to put it down, I think it's a very well-designed movie and it works really well for that scale of a, of a story. But you can't, you have limitations as to what that technology will let you do. I mean, it will only make it look the way you, those movies look. That, that, you, can't, you can't make it look differently. There will be advances to that, but you shoot in what looks like basically uh, sunset, dawn, or night, which are all beautiful. But, but to convey a different kind of a look that you would take as real, that's very difficult for the technology, as it always has been. I mean, that's not to say that you can't advance and do that. I mean, Jim Cameron will bring us Avatar, uh, and I'm not saying anything that's out of school because everybody knows that, that there's aspects of it that go underwater. Well, that's an aspect that he knows a lot about, because he's been underwater, he's been to the deepest part in the, in the whole world, more than anybody else, basically, until a year ago. So 
he's trying to convey what he's experienced in real life, the bioluminescence, the fragility of life, and bring it back to us. That's what drives the thing. The, the, whether it's the bringing dinosaurs, the subject matter, makes the technology have to come up and, and, and meet it. And I th- my own experience is I've been to two full rounds of this where everybody can say we're going to simplify everything and make it all much easier and, and cost efficient. And those work for those things. But there's nothing that replaces something that feels experiential. And that's why Jim's movies, uh, is, is he's really been there and really experienced it. He's conveyed to us what it's like. He's the person who has the most, you talk about the two extremes. On one hand, he's making a movie and living a life as someone who's a visionary. The other side, he's, he's risking his life is, and he's going into some little thing to go all the way to the bottom just to have an experience that's real and that, that, that does something that no other human has, has experienced. That's where the technology enters into that gap and then you, you create from there. So it, I don't think we're any better or any worse. We're just doing our epochs version. And, and as, when it moves forward, we'll look back and we'll understand more about what, what confined a certain era, the way you can look, let's say, at a 70s movie and say, oh, that's defined by X. Um, and, and I think that's, we're in the midst of that now, and particularly now because there's going to be such a budget crunch on so many movies, yet there'll be a few movies, you know, that are going to come out, avatars and a few, but, the, but they won't, they won't be able to just be forever expansive. Most of them, uh, because the, but the money won't even be there. So then people will take the technologies of the best they can. And we'll probably, I, I'm going to guess that we're going to have more collage kinds of sensibilities within a, a, a movie so that some sequences are done some way and some are done another and it's a little like looking at Zoom where you're, you're, you've got all these people in their environments. You accept them all as real. What's going to be the association, the crossover from one to another? And, and yet isolating could be very interesting as far as types of aesthetics within different scenes. Um, so I think the Mandalorian part, which is very impressive to go see and the efficiency that they seem to be able to do it with, um, although it is, it's a lot tougher than they would have you believe. As, I'm just saying, you know, their idea was everything's done in camera and there's no post. And, and, and as that always is the, the idea, you know, because uh, we could do everything up front. We can visualize everything. That doesn't necessarily make it into an organically expressive uh, form of the medium when everything's all perfect and, and it's just down to the replication of X, Y, and Z because fundamentally movies and I think most art cannot help but reflect the people that do it. And that means if you're, if you're a bunch of cowboy, uh, cow wranglers and horsemen or you're, or you're a bunch of computer nerds, it's going to show up and it does show up because people who sit in front of a screen their whole lives are not aware of all sorts of levels of, of life and it and then it shows up. Whereas certain movies when you're out on the streets, you just feel that you know it was shot for real in a real place. And that and you and sometimes that's very refreshing. Sometimes it's confining. So I don't have one aesthetic or another. I'm I'm looking for rawness and I'm looking for very sophisticated 
forms. It's really the idea of the movie itself and what's trying to be conveyed. And then if I can identify where it's coming from in relationship to the directors, what they're needing to express metaphorically, and even the writers and producers or the times. But mostly it's about, it's about connecting an art level with, um, with the, the primary artist who I consider to be the director. And then from that point out, amplifying that vision or adding to it when there's not something there, uh, a connection that might otherwise be created. So um, I hear your question uh, in, in relationship to technologies. I'm just not that hung up uh, because I've just been through too many rounds of it already on what this is supposed to mean at this particular moment. There's a lot of great things going on. That's I'm not putting it down. I'm more just saying what's its purpose and, and then what's going to stand the test of time, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So Rick, on that, on that note, first of all, I want to be sensitive to your time. I've been going out for an hour here. I thought maybe we could uh, move towards so, wrapping So up. Maybe, maybe another five or ten minutes would be good. Thank yeah. you so much. Uh, uh, very, very generous. Um, on that note, just you know, addressing the, that point, I think tying together the ideas about collaboration and uh, technology that, that we've been talking about. One of, the, one of the phrases that I heard that, it, that influenced me tremendously over the past several years is, uh, I don't remember who said it, but that the new genius is no longer a single person. Um, some industries like painting, that's hard to understand. In filmmaking and architecture, it's probably easier to understand. Um, although we still have sort of cult of the personality, I, I think still, still leading and governing. Um, the, uh, the, in terms of, let's say, your, experience, your, your career spanning um, this phase where everything was physical to the point where everything theoretically could be digital, um, and addressing the last point about bringing these two worlds together, uh, what do you foresee as being the most important elements to put in place, maybe on the organization, on the technology, I don't know, to allow that type of conversion to happen. So the people that are very skilled and very deep on the virtual side can be instructed by, guided by, influenced by the people that are high on the experiential, physical, tactile side. How to bring those two together so you don't lose um, you know, all of the incredible emotional, tactile qualities within this technological explosion that we're going through and the, the breakneck speed at, at which it advances? I, I really don't know. I, I wish I, I wish I knew. I, 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 there's a number of thoughts in there. And I would, to be honest, I would, I, I hesitate to have any, uh, especially given what we're experiencing. I, I don't think we know what we're experiencing. And so I'm not quite as, I don't think I'm as arrogant in my mind as I was two months ago. And I think even though I might uh, try to come across as not being arrogant, and, and, and I don't think that I am by many standards, however, when you get older, you, you live a long time or a while, I'm 70, and I feel like I know what I know or that I have felt that. And so I might be able to respond to that question as to how to bridge together, you know, the technical people and the artists and the visions and the collaborative nature of things. Um, 
I feel far more humbled uh, as a person and an artist and, I, and, and the survival aspects of what we are doing and creating uh, in this time, I think, are going to define uh, a lot of what goes forward so that the things that people would have thought they were going to draw upon and the assumptions, most people right now, including myself, have tried to project themselves out of this situation that we're in using the models that they have that they went in with and their ideas that were preconceived. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's natural, except for that when you, when those models break down and the statistics or the, or the technologies don't, the markets, places, whatever it is, are not there, then another kind of creativity comes forth. And then it gets more to the basis of, as I've said before, why are you doing it? And that could be just raw ego and power. And many will probably exert that. And then some will be desperation. Some will find some way through to have something that inspires them at the right time to to be uh, able to, to create right at the right time something that matters. Uh, Kathy Kennedy has always had a great line that while I'm trying not to look back, I, I try to pull those nuggets from things in the past to see if they still sustain. It's a very broad thing to say, but as she described her job, it's if you can do the right thing at the right time in the right place, then you can be a good producer. Now, that's very vague, but she's somebody who, for instance, at the last day of shooting in Hawaii and uh, Kauai, Hurricane Aniki hit, and the entire crew was shut down and had to, to go into the basement of the hotel. And when they came out, there was, you know, just devastation everywhere. Roads were all blocked. The whole place was martial law. And there was no way to get the crew off the island. And there was no, you know, there's nothing they could do. They didn't, and, they, and yet, as a producer, she went to the head of the, the uh, martial law, uh, the army that was uh, in charge of it all, and instead of fighting against him, she, she said, what if I, um, well, I know you have flights that will come in if they're bringing something that's essential for the islanders that you deem to be essential, medicine, equipment, or whatever. She said, what if I charter a plane out of San Francisco and I fill it with whatever you think you need up to $100,000 worth? And we fly it in here, and they, they fly it in under your auspices. You land it, you offload that, and I have my crew there, and then I get them on the plane and they fly back. That's how the crew got out. So the, this is creativity that, that is under the pressure of what's really happening, not the grand idea that you would have and then throw up your hands or just go back to, you know, well, can we get Spielberg off the island? In a, in a private helicopter. You know, there's a, there's, that's the kind of thing that I would say moving forward, we're going to see a lot of, of, of people having to draw upon deep resources and creativity. And then it's got to be in relationship to someone else's need so that then you're coming together and unexpected unions and collaborations will happen that, that, are, that are not something you would think would work because of politics or anything else. Um, going in. And I think that's the type of thing I hope happens, but I, I think I'm kind of long in the tooth to really understand what that will be specifically as much as I can, I can grasp, 
I can grasp the, the severity of the potential that we might be into. And, and since I'm, I'm the, the son of a, of, of a mother whose uh, father lost everything in the Depression in a, in a farm, that has stayed with me my entire life. So that's my point of reference is when they talk about the Great Depression, I go, well, that's personal to what my mother's entire life was after that. And she carried it forward and even instilled aspects of that in me. So how, how is one creative? What did she do? She actually moved off the farm, and with her sister, they came to Hollywood. And if you look at the generation that those two women created of Hollywood dreamers, there's a bunch of us, and that's what happened. But that didn't happen because they just decided to move off the farm. It came from necessity. So as you're moving forward, I would just say, look for yes is the answer. That's the John Lennon idea. And look for where you can actually go that's not just meeting so much resistance and is just your own ego trip about where you think you should be. Uh, because a lot of egos are going to get crushed through this. And um, and that's going to seem uh, pretty lightweight. So that does not answer your question other than philosophically what, am, what I try to impart. And that's actually something I want to do at this stage. I'm doing okay, so if I can help other younger people project themselves into the world with a bit of purpose and, a, and a, some humility and, and maybe for the common good but also benefiting themselves so they're not in some weird dynamic in the minding the gap where you're in some guilt trip over what you've got and what someone else has and you can't even figure your way forward to do something for yourself but tie the for yourself to other people and be creative and that's 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 the uh that's what i got from the beatles and uh you know there's four of us here and you know to me it's make some music and be creative what's what's why would you be afraid of that sit in your octopus's garden you know under the sea i'm gonna say uh thank you from me for everything guys because i know obviously we're very very tight on time so i'm gonna ask i guess dev and uh, ben if you want to say anything yeah i i just uh met rick as you probably know by now i maybe not i i my, my main motivation in building art matter and actually everything that came before was to generate the network to be able to navigate all you know situations just like this um on an existential level but also on a creative level um, to ensure the happiness of all the creatives, technologists, entrepreneurs, um, and the continued ability to grow and to expand. Um, and these, the, you know, these conversations help so much. Um, the, the breadth and depth that you bring to all these, no matter what the topic is, is, is just extraordinary. Um, I know everyone agrees. Uh, great. Well, thank you. And uh, I hope you have a great time and, and make it through all this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. okay, bye.